Let's pray. Heavenly Father, ashes, ashes. We all fall down. In Jesus' name, amen. So why do we confess our sins? And what happens when we do? There is always a psychological component to the spiritual things that we do as believers. Science stops at psychology. We can't because we are more than just a brain. When it comes to confession of sins, a a psychologist's primarily, well, they're interested in you unburdening your conscience, which, by the way, is very important. Stanford University says between 50 and 70% of all illnesses are related to stress and anxiety that starts here and works its way to the rest of our body. But there is more to, well, to this than just telling somebody, I'm sorry. When God created us, he didn't just throw some mud together and breathe life into it. No, we're created in his image. He he designed a very complex system. Ecclesiastes says God set eternity in our heart. The book of Romans says he put the law there as well. These are hardwired so we always remember who we are and where we're going. You are made up of two very distinctive parts, a body and a soul. Everyone gets born with both of those things. What really sets you apart as a believer is that you have the Spirit of God in you, filling up your soul, which gives you a third and distinct, very powerful component to help you in this life. In Psalm 51, when David cries out, Take not your Holy Spirit from me, we begin to understand the importance and necessity of the Spirit filling our soul. Otherwise, we're like an unplugged appliance that's just sitting there on the counter. It may look pretty, but it cannot do what it was created and designed to do. Now, Oxford Dictionary says sin is an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. Same dictionary says immorality is defined as not conforming to accepted standards of morality. And morality is defined as principles concerning the distinction between right and wrong or good and bad behavior. Notice the conflict between sin and immorality. Sin is an immoral act against divine law, but immorality is defined as accepted standards, breaking them. So which is it? Uh, Is it about divine law or is it about accepted standards? Divine law is established by God. Accepted standards are reached by common consensus or by brute power. Very, very different things. We all worship a whole bunch of somethings and someones. Um, Our worship is prioritized by what we consider the ultimate goal and purpose of our life. Often people worship power and money and fame. And they also worship the people that they think can bring them those things. Our idea of morality is based upon the things we worship, leading to the end, often justifying the means. I hope you can see where this leads. The wages of sin is death, the book of Romans declares. But Paul goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life. And his terminology is very intentional. Wages, something you earn. A gift, something you don't. Sin is sin. And we can categorize it, prioritize it, organize it, but it remains sin. And sin separates us from God and from one another, and it even separates us from ourselves. And far more importantly, unrepentant sin will keep us out of heaven. And because there are only two options, heaven and hell, Well, the default then becomes hell, unless, and that unless is very, very important. When Nathan came to King David and told him the story of a shepherd and his one cute little lamb and this evil guy with hundreds of flocks and the evil guy steals the the one shepherd's only and cute little lamb, 
David had no problem understanding what the prophet was saying. So much so he got hot under the collar and demanded this evil guy be punished. The moment Nathan said the evil guy is you and it's not about sheep but about Bathsheba and her now deceased husband Uriah, uh, David was convicted in his heart. Now he could have play, played the, you know, I'm the chosen one of God. Or you know what, the king doesn't have to obey by all these rules. He could have said, I didn't do that, or the devil made me do that. But David knew that they would just compound his sin and push him further away from God. Psalm 51 is one of the most beautiful confessions ever written or spoken. And the theology leads us to exactly where we all need to go. Into the arms of a God who cares enough about us to confront us when we're headed the wrong direction. And also willing to forgive and welcome us home when he gets us turned around. The opening lines seem a little over the top, and maybe they are a little emotional. But David was never shy about his feelings. Oh, cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. When God's word is spoken and our heart is torn apart because we realize that not only have we sinned against God, but we have sinned against a someone or a whole bunch of someones, and we've hurt them, and we've upset the apple cart, there is always emotion and pain and loss. Psalm 51 also introduces us to original sin, the sin that we're born with. And so when David says, you know, in sin did my mother conceive me, surely I have been sinful from my birth. He's not talking about any of the events surrounding his conception or even the act of conception itself. Beginning with the fall of Adam and Eve, all of humanity have had this inbred rebellion against God that can only be removed by the power of God's word and spirit. This is not a sin that we do or think. This is a sin that we are. So original sin is also why King David says, You do not desire sacrifice or I would bring it. A contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So how much would you pay to be forgiven? How much would you pay to be guaranteed entrance into heaven? We live in a world where when something is rare or popular, it becomes outrageously expensive. Super Bowl tickets last week, between 5000 and 9000 Hotel rooms, if you could find one, started at about 1200 a night. And by the way, those were not any suites. And don't forget, even Taylor Swift was having a hard time finding a place to park her jet to watch her boyfriend. See, God doesn't need your money, though. He created the universe and everything in it. You can't bribe him. So why did he require sacrifices in the Old Testament? <sighs> it was an object lesson. In order for the person to understand the gravity of their sin, something had to die, either them or the animal. And remember, we're not talking about pets or strays. We're talking about animals that were their food source or their source of income. So unless they were rich, sacrificing a sheep or a cow meant that they were going to miss a meal or two, not just them, but the whole family. It's called consequences. It's also why King David was so mad at the evil rich guy who stole the shepherd's only lamb and why Jesus had such a struggle with the rich and powerful. When they sinned, they just tossed another sheep or cow on the barbie and went about their sinning without even thoughts. What about when you don't have anything to give God? When you understand that your sin is so great that... that you couldn't make up for it even if you had a million years. And that's assuming, by the way, that during that million years that you didn't sin more, which would cause you to even add more time to it. What happens when you say, Lord, I just don't have anything that I could possibly offer you? See, Ash Wednesday is about our fragility as humans. 
we are given the opportunity to be honest about who we are and who God is and how this whole theological conundrum of life and death and heaven work. Nathan reminds us we need someone in our life that's willing to step up and point out our sin, even if they have to tell us a story to get us to listen. King David helps us see there are no limits to the words or emotions we use when we're confronted with our sins and our failures. And God wants us to know that no matter what we have done, and let's face it, what King David had done was really horrific, there is always a way to come home. You know the ashes on your forehead? The sackcloth around my neck? They're not just about proving to God that we're repentant. I mean, anyone can smear ashes from the barbecue on their forehead. Anybody can throw another steak or, you know, a lamb on the barbecue and call it a sacrifice. But such things will not bring us forgiveness or peace in and of themselves because we can't fool God. We must also be careful about glamorizing any suffering we might be going through as though it makes us more holy than everybody else in the eyes of God. Neither should we think that if we're not suffering, that that just means that God is so pleased with us that, well, we couldn't get any better. No, the ashes on our forehead remind us our mortality, suffering, and death do not and will not ever have the last word. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, but always in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. Those are the words spoken at the end of every funeral. You see, God meets us in our fragility as we stand over someone we love, and even as we pour dirt on their coffin. It's a final aloha, but it's an aloha, a hui ho, because God speaks words of promise so that we are not left without hope. To be forgiven is only because God loved you and loves you and paid the price of your sin by taking it into himself and dying in your place. To be forgiven is not because you earned it or deserved, for, deserved it or even asked for it, but because God wanted you to spend your life loving and laughing and making a difference instead of worrying or working. To be forgiven is to be alive, body, soul, and spirit. To be forgiven is to be forever. They say 80 to 90% of an iceberg is underwater, which is why you can't see it. I always figured 80 to 90% of my sins are also invisible to you, and maybe even to me, which is why it's important that when we confess our sins, we realize it's not just about naming them or categorizing them or being flippant about them, but instead coming before God and saying, look, some of my sin I know, some remains hidden from me. So forgive me for the sake of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's not even our acknowledgement or confession of our sin that makes us forgiven. Such things are just God opening our eyes, heart, and soul to his love and giving us the chance to say, thank you. If you want to put some words to the ashes on your forehead and flesh out a little, big, a little bit more of my opening question, why do we confess our sins and what happens when we do? Here is something Frederick Beekner put forth as a primer for Lent. If you had to bet everything you have on whether there is a God or whether there isn't, which side would you put your money on and why? When you look at your face in the mirror, what do you see in it that you most like and what do you see in it that you most deplore? If you had only one last message to leave to the handful of people who are the most important to you, what would it be in 25 words or less of all the things that you have done in your life? Which is the one that you would most like to undo? And which is the one that makes you the happiest to remember? 
Is there any person in the world or any cause that if circumstances called for it, you would be willing to die for? If this were the last day of your life, what would you do with it? To hear yourself try to answer questions like these is to begin to hear something not only of who you are, but of both what you are becoming and what you are failing to become. It can be pretty depressing, business all in all. But if sackcloth and ashes are at the start of it, something like Easter is surely to be the end of it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.